to be with you this morning. As always, it's a delight to be gathered with God's people on the Lord's Day. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the Word together. Father, thank you for your Word. There are times where we just hear it read, and our hearts sing like this time. And we ask, Lord, for your help now as we look at it more closely. We pray that you would help this preacher expound accurately according to your truth, led by the Spirit, and that for each of us listening, that your Spirit would also move in us to hear your truth eagerly, to receive it with all eagerness, testing to see, to make sure all things are true, but that your Spirit would also sanctify us even as we hear your word now. God, help us in all of these things for your glory and namesake. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. A couple of years ago, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver ended the opening prayer of the new Congress in a controversial way. Now, you might remember it as the Amen and Ah Woman prayer, but the silliness of Ah Woman should not have really been what concerned us. What should have concerned us is what he said before that. He said this, We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. Now the one idea that he actually had right there is that there really is only one God. But the problematic and blasphemous thing that he said is that this God is Brahma, and is known by other names by different faiths. Brahma, in case you don't know who that is, is actually one of many gods in Hinduism, and one of the three main gods, even, along with Vishnu and Shiva. In Hinduism, Brahma is considered the creator god of Hinduism, who himself emerged from a golden egg or a lotus flower and created the earth and everything in it. He's usually depicted as a red or golden man with a beard, four heads and four hands holding various objects. He's actually ever rarely worshipped in Hinduism, believe it or not. But the reason that they don't worship Brahma in Hinduism is that in their minds, Brahma created everything, but his work is over. He's done. And it's actually now uh, Vishnu who preserves the universe and Shiva who destroys and transforms it. And so Brahma is impersonal. He's uninvolved with everyday life. So Congressman Cleaver prayed to that God, and he equated him with the true and living God of the Bible. He also equated God with other monotheistic gods of other faiths. He didn't name anybody else specifically, but some of the other monotheistic gods are Allah of Islam, Ahura Mazda of Zoroastrianism, and Wahuguru of Sikhism. But Allah, for one, doesn't have a personal or intimate relationship with his creation. He is transcendent in that way. He also does not have a son. He is also not a trinity. He doesn't reveal anything about himself. All he reveals is his will. That's Allah of Islam. Ahura Mazda is not the only spiritual being in Zoroastrianism, but he has an adversary, 
an equal called Angramainu, who is the source of all evil and chaos. Ahura Mazda also doesn't directly intervene in human affairs, but is reliant on his helpers. Wahiguru has no attributes or, or qualities at all, to the point that you can't describe anything about him. You can't comprehend anything about Wahiguru. He's also not the creator of the universe, but he's a manifestation of the eternal and formless reality. To say that we all worship the same God is at best ignorant and at worst deceitful. Let me tell you about our God. Let me tell you about the true and living God. He is the only God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the uncaused cause. His being is not dependent on anyone or anything. Not only did he create all things, but he sustains all things. He cares for all things. He has established an intimate relationship with his creation. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And though he is in one sense incomprehensible, he has revealed much of himself to us in creation and in his word. He has decreed all things. And he providentially works out every moment in history by his providence. That is the God whom we serve. The actual God. And the other gods that people worship are not him. So don't say that, Christian. Don't say that everybody worships the same God. And do not accept it when other people say it. If someone tells you we all worship the same God, you tell them, let me tell you about my God, and you tell me if that's the same God you're thinking of. It's an opportunity for the gospel, okay? Other than the logical reality that if our two gods are so different, they're so different, there's no way that we can be worshiping the same God. The Bible also treats the gods of other religions in that way. The Bible never hints at the idea that the Canaanites worshipped Yahweh, but they just called him Baal. Or that the Ammonites sacrificed children to Yahweh, but just called him Molech. The Bible doesn't talk like that, and so neither should we. The Bible is clear. They were worshipping other gods. They were worshipping figments of their imagination. Today in our passage, God calls all of these other gods to account. He challenges them to a showdown. So if these so-called gods can perform, then God and his people, they'll acknowledge their deity. If you can perform, we'll acknowledge your deity. Let's see this play out together. In this passage, we're going to see two phases. And the first one is in which God allows any and all other gods to make their moves. That's phase one. Any, all, any and all other gods can make their moves. And then in the second phase, we'll see God make his move. All right, so let's see how this goes. First, we see this. Phase one, their turn, their turn. Verse 21, this is God speaking. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Set forth your case, God says. Lay out your best arguments, you so-called gods of this world. Genuinely, make your case. Go ahead. 
There's going to be a lot of sarcasm in this sermon, by the way, which you may not be used to from me, but I'm just telling you what this passage is expressing. All right? God is not at all reticent to give these false gods a chance. We can learn from this. We don't need to be scared of false gods. Ultimately, the truth will bear out. We don't need to be worried about other gods because they don't exist. Christianity does and will stand against every test, unlike the false religions of the world. So, false gods, set forth your case. Notice the phrase in verse 21, says the Lord, says Yahweh. The one calling out these false gods is none other than Yahweh himself, the true and living God. And as we said in a previous sermon, if you are being challenged by God to a duel or a debate, it is not going to go well for you. Verse 21 continues, God says, bring your proofs. So here is what kind of arguments God expects them to make. He wants them to produce evidence. It's not enough for them to state their claims. Those claims need to be backed up by proof. Let's consider the evidence that's provided by other religions. There's a great article out there that you can look up. It's called, Every Religion Claims to be Historical, But Only Christianity Is. That's by Gary Habermas and Benjamin Shaw. And in that article, here's some of what it points out. Regarding Buddhism, when it came to analyzing the writings of 19th century Buddhists, what date Buddha was born on differed by over 2,000 years. They can't decide when he was born by over 2,000 years. And Buddha's historical existence was crucial for those Buddhists, is crucial for Buddhists, because their faith was based on whether Buddha actually achieved enlightenment or not. Also, many of Buddha's major writings date from 600 to 900 years after his death. The problem with that is there is no objective criterion in order to test whether something claimed to be Buddha's teaching really is Buddha's teaching, 600 to 900 years after his death. The writing the writings of the New Testament, on the other hand, were written just a few decades after Christ's death, not 900 years. As opposed to the uncertainty about whether Buddha actually ever existed, most scholars, most reasonable scholars, will at least affirm that Jesus, as a historical figure, lived. That's widely accepted. Similarly, when it comes to Hinduism, the, the article points out that most Hindu scholars doubt whether or not Krishna, one of Hinduism's most popular and beloved gods, actually lived. That's debated among them. And furthermore, none of the actual Hindu texts can be dated prior to the 12th century AD, which is 4,100 years after Krishna allegedly spoke with his first disciple. So 4,100 years before we have their writings. In Islam, Muslims cite the Quran in order to argue that Jesus didn't die by crucifixion. But the man who wrote it was a thousand miles away, writing a full 600 years after the crucifixion. In fact, Muslim apologist Ahmed Didat said of this critique, he says this, the Christian plea is valid. Their logic is good. In other words, yeah, they got a good point. 
He was a thousand miles away. It was a 600 years later. But then he goes on to cite the Quran anyway to argue against the Gospels. Also, it's arguable that there are no miraculous events reported of Muhammad in the Quran beyond just the words themselves, whereas in the Bible, God's MO was to regularly accompany his word with miracles to authenticate the message. In a different article by Mike Lycona, he quotes several BYU archaeologists, archaeologists who research at BYU, and all of them affirm that archaeology contradicts the claims of the Book of Mormon in BYU. One of the archaeologists say this, what I would say to you is there is no archaeological proof of the Book of Mormon. You can look all you want, and there's been a lot of speculation about it. There have been books written by Mormon scholars saying that this event took place here, or this event took place here, but that's entirely speculative. There is absolutely no archaeological evidence that you can tie directly to events that took place, end quote, archaeologists from BYU. We could go on. But you get the idea, I think. We should not be afraid that false gods will bring any proof. They can't. So let them state their claims. Let them bring their proofs. Let them produce their evidence. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 21. Says the king of Jacob. Remember that phrase, king of Jacob, is synonymous with king of Israel because Jacob was renamed Israel. And perhaps uh, it's... It's used here as king of Jacob to remind the people reading this scroll that Yahweh is the, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God, the king of Jacob, continues in verse 22. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. So, now, God narrows down the evidence that he wants them to bring. He wants them to tell the future. Why would telling the future be a test of deity? Answer, only a God knows the beginning from the end. Only a God knows exactly what is going to happen and, in fact, has decreed all of human history. Now, even if you don't agree with me that God has decided every single detail of history and has chosen, uh, then you have to, even if you don't affirm that, you have to at least affirm that God knows every single detail of history and has chosen to proceed with it as is. Only God can do that. And therefore, only God can predict the future. But aren't there people who use divination to predict the future? No, not really. Not really. Here was the Denver Post's horoscope for Aries on Wednesday. Your focus on cash flow, money, and earnings continues, especially because you have money-making ideas. Plus, many of you want to buy beautiful things on sale. Nevertheless, you're happy to cocoon at home today and curl up under your baby blue blankie. So that was Aries' horoscope on Wednesday. Just kidding. That was Cancer on Monday. <laughs> but you would have never known that because it does not matter. The predictions are so vague, they're bound to come true. 
By the way, Christian, you should, Christians, you should not be using horoscopes. Not that they're real, but they're an offense to God, okay? What about predictions that are more specific? Like there's this television show that's kind of joked about right now because it seems to just predict everything. Well, that show's been around since 1989, and there's 750 episodes. So it's bound to predict some things, right? But others can predict events from data. They can predict events from trends. And by the way, could not a sophisticated network of demons do the same thing and feed those predictions to soothsayers? But only a god can foretell the future with any kind of authority and perfect reliability. So let the idols bring their proofs. Tell us what is to happen. London astrologers predicted that the world would end with a flood in 1524. And in fact, something like 20,000 Londoners left their homes for higher ground because of this prophecy. They adjusted that failed prophecy to 100 years later in 1624, which also failed. The Jehovah's Witnesses predicted the world would end in 1941. Indian astrologers, 1962. Nostradamus, supposedly, 1999. And many of us lived through the apocalyptic year of 2012. The list of failed prophecies is a lot longer than that, but not one of those prophecies was from God. False gods cannot predict the future. Even demons cannot predict the future, at least with any certainty. They may have better guesses than we do with all of the data and all of the information and influence that they have, but ultimately, they do not know what God knows. Not even the elect angels know everything about the future. Matthew tells us that the angels don't even know when the second coming is. First Peter tells us that when the gospel appeared, angels were curious and eager to look into it. Angels don't know everything about the future. How much less would demons know? And that's why Satan and his demons can't imitate prophecy, not at least in the way that the Bible prophesies. Other religions claim to have fulfilled prophecies, but those prophecies are vague and they're unconvincing. There is no holy book that has a track record of specific prophetic fulfillment as the Bible does. So go on, go off those who would claim to be gods. Tell us what is to happen. Verse 22 continues, tell us the former things, what they are that we may consider them. So don't even just tell us about the future, tell us about the past. Tell us with 100% accuracy what has happened in the past. The Quran says that Alexander the Great helped a tribe of people build a massive wall of iron between two mountains and that that wall would remain in place until the day of judgment. No such massive structures have been found. It also says that David invented coats of mail, even though that wasn't until 500 years after David. It also says that Moses dealt with Sumerians, who actually didn't exist until a half century later. Those are just a few historical errors found in the Quran. Earlier, we talked about how zero archaeology 
supports the claims that are made in the Book of Mormon. But there are also several anachronisms contained in that book. In other words, things that are outside of the time that they're claiming. So he got the timing wrong on the invention of scimitars, these swords, uh, the presence of elephants, horses, sheep, goats, cattle, wheat, and silk in America. Now, Joseph Smith, in the 1800s, would have been familiar with all of those things. But he apparently wasn't aware that most of them were brought over to this continent by Europeans. So they didn't exist in America during the times that the Book of Mormon claims that they did. So not only can these false gods not tell the future, but they can't even tell the past with 100% accuracy. Tell us, false gods, verse 22, the former things what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Help us to make the connections between past events and subsequent events. If you're gods, surely they're not just random. Surely all of history is connected. They have outcomes. Verse 22, or declare to us the things to come. Past, future, tell us something, anything. Verse 23 says, God continues, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Come on, other gods, prophesy so that we know that you're gods. The middle of the verse says, do good or do harm. It's an expression meaning do something. Do anything. Prove yourselves to us, good or harm. Now at this point, we should say that we have no right to say that kind of thing to God. He has proven himself plenty. And he does not perform miracles on demand. God, however, does have the right to say this to the other gods. That is, if they existed. God would have the right to call them out to prove their existence. If there are any other gods out there, this is basically saying, if there are any other gods out there, then do some good. And if you don't want to do some good, do some bad. Do something. Do something, verse 23, that we may be dismayed and terrified. That's what happens when a God does something. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Moses hid his face. God made thunder and lightning when he gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai, and the people trembled and stood at a distance and then gave up and said, we don't want to hear anymore. Tell Moses. Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples became very much afraid. God calls these false gods out to do something like that. Do good or do harm. Just do something so that we might be dismayed and terrified. Do anything. God gives the false gods of the world an opportunity to speak up. He gives them an opportunity to do something, and then he concludes in verse 24, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Now, don't worry that we're hurting the other gods' feelings here. They don't exist. They are nothing. Their work is less than nothing. The application is found at the last part of the verse. 
An abomination is he who chooses you. An abomination. Anyone who chooses a false god is disgusting to God, detestable to God, abhorrent to God. Why such strong feelings, especially toward those who have been deceived into believing in false gods? Why does God consider them abominations? Romans 1 gives us a lot of insight into that question. I recommend keeping your finger in Isaiah 41, but you might find it helpful to be looking at Romans 1, at least for the next few minutes. Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, people don't choose other gods out of ignorance. They choose other gods because they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. They don't want to bow their knee to the true and living God. And so they suppress knowledge of him. Verses 19 and 20 of Romans 1 say that God has revealed himself to them in creation. Verse 21 says that they knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Essentially, they rejected God and they let their hearts and minds get twisted. Verse 23 says this, says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They downgraded from God. They didn't want God, but there is no upgrade from God, so they downgraded. In these verses, we see three characteristics of choosing other gods. Three characteristics of choosing other gods. Number one, it is a sinful rejection. It's a sinful rejection. Those who choose other gods don't reject God from a morally neutral position. They reject God because of their sin. The true and living God has a law that they do not like. So instead, they fashion other gods that match their moral framework. They reject God because they don't like what he has to say. It's a sinful rejection. Two, it's a willful ignorance. It's a willful ignorance. They choose not to honor they God, the God that they know is there. They choose not to give thanks to God. They willfully allow themselves to become futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. There is plenty of evidence to support the reality that the God of the Bible is the true and living God. But those who choose other gods choose to be ignorant of him willfully. Well, what about those who have never heard of the God of the Bible, you ask? This passage in Romans 1, together with Romans 3, it says that it's not as if they see the evidence that God has shown them in nature and start seeking after him. No. Whether they've heard of him or not, they choose to reject him and they pursue gods of their own making instead. So it's a sinful rejection. It's a willful ignorance. Three, it's a high-handed insult. 
It's a high-handed insult. People downgrade from God. They fashion gods in their minds based on created things. They make statues of them, and they say, that's my God. Ashtoreth was often depicted as a woman holding a lotus flower or a lion cub. Baal looked like a man with horns, wearing a helmet and holding a thunderbolt or a spear. Dagon was depicted as a man with a body and the tail of a fish. You see what we're getting at here? They made gods based on created things. The true God is outside of his creation. He doesn't look like us. We're made in his image, not the other way around. God is spirit. He is everywhere. And that's why it's forbidden in the second commandment to make images, even of him, to worship him. This is why it was terrible for Israel to make a golden calf when Moses was on Mount Sinai for two seconds. This is why it's terrible for Mormons to depict Heavenly Father as some old man with a white beard. They even say, the Mormons, they say that God used to be a man. That's insulting to God, friends. To worship a God fashioned after created things rather than the Creator Himself is a high-handed insult. And therefore, for all of those reasons, those who choose false gods are, Isaiah 41, 21, an abomination. An abomination. What about non-religious people? Can non-religious people claim that they don't choose other gods? Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Listen, covetousness, which is idolatry. How is covetousness idolatry? Covetousness is idolatry because covetousness is pursuing things that are not from God and not for his glory. Everybody worships someone or something. Everybody, even atheists. It could be God whom they worship. It could be a false God, and it could even be oneself. Think about it. If you put your own desires above God's, you have placed yourself above him. And therefore, you're guilty of idolizing and worshiping yourself. So whether you're living for Baal or living for Zeus or living for Allah or living for yourself, you have been guilty of choosing false gods. And God says that those who do this are, verse 21, an abomination. And every single one of us has been guilty of doing this. Understanding that is going to help us to see the riches of God's grace. God didn't look at us and say, man, they are trying so hard. I just need to give them a little boost to get to the finish line. No, he looked at his people and said, those are abominations, but I love them. And I'm going to save them. We were not seeking after him. On the contrary, we were serving other gods. And it was in that context that God gave his only son to die for us. Consider the hatred that God has for idols and his wrath 
toward those who worship them. And let that help you see how magnificent his grace is toward those who believe in his son. After all, we still struggle with idolatry. We still pursue things that are not from God nor for his glory. In the flesh, we still often place our desires above God's. And yet for we who believe in Jesus Christ, God no longer sees us as abominations. He sees us as his children, clothed in the righteousness of his only begotten Son. And when we fall into idolatry, he is quick to forgive, and he is faithful to discipline us. God hates idols, but he loves us just the same, we who believe in Jesus Christ. But the one who does not believe, the one who persists in his idolatry, verse 21, is an abomination. They have rejected God. They have chosen gods who are nothing, whose work is less than nothing. So in our passage, God has given the gods of the earth an opportunity to show themselves, to prove their deity, but there is no other God after all. Phase one of this contest is complete. The false gods have made zero moves, and they have forfeited their turn. Now, we move to phase two, God's turn, God's turn. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who is this one from the north? In the immediate context, it's talking about King Cyrus. But Ed, I thought he was from the east, you say. Good, you're listening. Nice job. Cyrus is from the east, verse 2, because he's from Persia. But he's also from the north because he had conquered Media. He was king of both of the lands, and therefore it could be said of him that he comes from both the east and the north. And by the way, what a specific prophecy. Remember that this was written 150 years before Cyrus's time. He's going to be specifically named in chapter 44. And right now, God reveals to Isaiah that Cyrus would come from the east and from the north. Verse 2 and verse 25. That's very specific. If you're not a believer, you would have to assume that easy, either these were just crazy coincidences or that this part of Isaiah was written after the events took place. That's how accurate it is, even though there's no evidence to support that. God stirred up Cyrus, one from the north, and he has come. He has come, verse 25, from the rising of the sun, which is just a poetic way of saying the east, because that's where the sun rises from. So again, Cyrus comes from both the north and the east. Verse 25 continues, and he shall call upon my name. Now, this is not to say that Cyrus worshipped Yahweh, at least not exclusively. Isaiah 45, verses 4 through 5, says that Cyrus doesn't know him, even though he knows about him, and he credits Yahweh for his victory. Cyrus calls upon Yahweh, Yahweh's name in that way. And then verse 25 goes on to say of Cyrus, he shall trample on rulers as on mortar. 
Mortar is um, like cement. It's a mixture of sand, water, and lime that was used as cement. But picture it while it's soft, right? It's easy to trample and destroy wet cement. That's how Cyrus's trampling would be. Remember from earlier in this chapter how easy it was for Cyrus to go in and conquer people. He defeated Astyages of the Medes, Croesus of Lydia, Amasis II of Egypt, and soon Nabonidus of Babylon, like they were nothing. He trampled on all of them as on mortar, verse 25, as the potter treads clay. Potters would tread clay by stepping on it with their feet, and that's the same idea here. Cyrus is to other rulers as a potter is to his clay. So, this is the first piece of evidence that the Lord puts forth during his turn. He raised up Cyrus. He made it easy for Cyrus to conquer his enemies and thus deliver God's people. The next piece of evidence that God puts forth is that he foretold these events. He foretold these events. Look at verse 26. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. God asks, who declared it from the beginning that we might know? That phrase, from the beginning, might well be talking about the creation of the world, and that is certainly true. God has decreed all things from eternity. He didn't just decide to do this at some point in history. This was decided from the beginning. This was decided even before God said, let there be light. Once we get to Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, Lord willing, we're going to hear God say this, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. From the beginning, God declared the end, and implied in that is everything in between. God knows all things. And he can do all things. Therefore, he can declare events from the beginning of creation and ensure that they happen. This is what God did regarding Cyrus. He asks, who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say, he is right. Not only did God decree it from the beginning, but he also made it known to the people before it happened so that they could confirm that his prophecy had come true. But actually, in this verse, he's not even yet saying, I did. That's not what he's saying in this verse. What he's saying in verse 26 is, none of y'all did. There was none who declared it, verse 26 says. None who proclaimed it. None who heard your words. No one saw this coming. Let's say, for example, that the gods of the Babylonians were real. Just pretend for a moment. The Babylonians had several major deities, but they also acknowledged 2,000 to 3,000 gods. None of them saw this coming? None of them saw it? In 2018, there was a psychic evening in South Yorkshire, England, that was canceled due to, quote, unforeseen circumstances. 
This is kind of like that. You have thousands of gods in your pantheon, and not one of them foretold Cyrus. Not one. Zero Babylonian prophets prophesied the downfall of Babylon at the hand of King Cyrus. On the other hand, God says in verse 27, I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. God was the first one to reveal these events 150 years before they happened. And he revealed them to Zion, a.k.a. Jerusalem. God said to them, verse 27, Behold, here they are. In other words, here are the events that are about to take place. And God gave Jerusalem, verse 27, a herald of good news, probably talking about Isaiah. So, tying the thoughts of verses 26 and 27 together, who foresaw this happening? Who decreed this? Who prophesied this? None of you did. I did. I sent my prophet over a hundred years before these things happened. That's what God is saying here. And then in verse 28, we read this. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. God is looking for literally anyone to give a rebuttal. There is no one. The legal team of the other nations didn't show up because they don't exist. No one answers God because there is no one to answer God. And thus, in verse 29, it says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The word translated as a delusion literally means trouble, sorrow, or wickedness. It's translated in other English translations as false, foolish, vanity, worthless, nothing. So we get the idea here. When someone is delusional, they have their hopes set on something that isn't true. These idols were trouble in that way. They only led to sorrow in that way. They were nothing. They were all a delusion. Their works, verse 29 says, are nothing. All the great claims made of these false gods are untrue. They haven't actually done anything because they don't exist. Verse 29 continues, their metal images are empty wind. The people would make these metal idols that supposedly represented their gods and then they would bow down to worship these statues. But the metal idols were empty wind. The empty wind has no substance. It has no power. It's fleeting. So the idea here is that the idols are vain. They're worthless and they're futile. This is God's conclusion at the end of the contest. He has provided them an opportunity to present their evidence, and no one showed up. He then presented his evidence, his mighty works through Cyrus, and his foretelling of these events. He even provided an opportunity for them to rebut his arguments. Alas, no one showed up. God's conclusion, these false gods are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Now, God knew all of this already. These, this whole conversation was for the benefit of his people. It's for our benefit. 
It's to make us realize that the gods of this world are nothing. If you'll indulge us for a little while longer, let's look back at a different time when God challenged another false god. I invite you to turn to 1 Kings 18, or you can just listen carefully. Don't worry, this will be relatively quick. 1 Kings 18. In 1 Kings 18, we're in the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of the northern kingdom of Israel, who... uh, promoted the worship of Baal in Israel and Asherah and persecuted the prophets of the Lord. So a meeting is set up between King Ahab and the prophet Elijah at the end of a three-year drought. And Elijah tells Ahab, gather the people along with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah and to send them to Mount Carmel. Why Ahab just up and does what Elijah says? I don't know. Maybe it was out of fear because Elijah was a prophet of Yahweh after all, and maybe it was just out of sheer curiosity. But whatever the case, King Ahab listens to the prophet Elijah and sends the people and the prophets to Mount Carmel. And in 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah says to the people, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people didn't answer him. Thus began the showdown. Elijah, the only prophet of Yahweh there, was facing down 450 prophets of Baal. Here's the challenge. Elijah calls for two bulls, and they would each prepare a bull as a sacrifice to their respective gods, and then put them on wood, but not light the wood, Baal's prophets would get to go first. Phase one, their turn. All they would have to do, this is it, just call upon Baal and have Baal answer them by fire. Everyone agrees to the terms of this challenge. Verse 26 tells us that these prophets, these 450 prophets, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. Of course, nobody answered. Maybe they were in a dead zone. They didn't have a signal. So they limped around the altar that they made, probably doing some sort of ritual dance, trying to get Baal's attention. At noon, Elijah mocks them, saying in verse 25, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Keep going, prophets of Baal. He's going to hear you eventually. Maybe he's just meditating, or maybe he's zoned out. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Just give the guy a minute. Maybe he's stepped out for a moment for an ice cream. Maybe he's sleeping, and you need to wake him up. Elijah, that's not nice. No, I'll tell you what's not nice. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie, worshiping a God of your own invention, and then deceiving God's people to follow you in your delusion. That's not nice. Sarcasm isn't always the best way to speak. Our speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt. But this holy sarcasm in 1 Kings 18 of Elijah's is well-placed, and it's directed at the right people. The prophets of Baal persist. 
They cry even louder. They start cutting themselves. 450 prophets of Baal cut themselves to get the attention of their false god. Verse 28 says that blood gushed out upon them. Can you imagine this scene? 450 people, blood just gushing out everywhere. It's a bloody scene of futility. Verse 29 says, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. End of turn. Phase two, God's turn. Then Elijah tells the people to come near to him. He repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down because you see the prophets of Baal had previously torn down Yahweh's altar. After repairing the altar, Elijah makes a trench around the altar that could hold about four gallons of water. Then he sets up the wood, cuts the bowl into pieces, lays them on the wood, and then he tells people to fill four more jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and the wood. And they do. Then he tells them, do it two more times. And they do. So now the wood is soaked. The sacrifice is soaked. And the trench that Elijah dug is also full of water. And this made it so that the people may know that this was what God was about to do was indisputably miraculous. Then Elijah prays. He says in verses 36 and 37, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the entire thing. Not just the burnt offering, but also the wood and the stones and the dust. And it also licked up all of the water that was in the trench. And the conclusion of the people is in verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then Elijah orders the execution of all of the false prophets of Baal, these godless men who had been leading Israel to the worship of a false god. Indulge us once more to tell you of just one more showdown. In Revelation 16, verses 13 and six through 16, John sees these three unclean spirits coming out of the mouths of the dragon, Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the Antichrist's ally. Phase one, their turn. These three form an unholy trinity. They are a false god whom people worship. The unclean spirits from them perform signs and wonders, and they, they deceive the kings of the earth to gather them for battle against God in a place called Armageddon. And then in Revelation 19, 11 through 21, John sees heaven open and a white horse appears. Phase two, God's turn. On this horse is a rider called Faithful and True. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. His, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven follow him on white horses, 
dressed themselves in fine linen, white and clean. The beast is captured. The false prophet is captured. And they are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of the rider. In Revelation 20, Satan too is cast into that lake of fire. And thus, the showdown is over. The false gods that will have deceived the world against Yahweh will be destroyed. And Jesus Christ, the rider on the white horse, will be revealed to be the true and living God. Are you getting the picture here? The false gods of this world have had their chance to prove themselves to you. Your idols have had their chance to prove themselves to you. And they have presented themselves as those which will give you joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And they have time and time again come up empty. Will you keep worshiping them? On the other hand, God has proven himself to you. His existence is plainly seen in his creation, as well as how his holy law affects and pricks our hearts and consciences. He has revealed his holy character and his works in the scriptures, which have time and time again proven to be true. He has proven his love for you by giving you his only son to die on the cross for you. Will you choose him or will you choose your idols? Will you choose him or will you choose yourself? Praise the Lord that he is merciful and gracious toward us. Not only did he give us his only son to pay for our sins, but as we continue to struggle against idolatry in this flesh, he does not strike us down on the spot. He does not call us abominations. He does not order us to be executed. He will not cast us into the lake of fire. God is merciful and gracious toward us. And oh, how that should all the more enliven us to tear down our Asherah poles and destroy our high places. How it should invigorate us to crush our idols and mortify our sin. God is so good to us. Do you know this God? We're not just talking about knowing about him. We're talking about knowing him. Do you know this God? Are you right with him? God has provided one way and only one way for you to know him and be right with him, Jesus Christ. And if you put your trust in the son whom he sent, the one who lived the perfect life on our behalf and died on the cross for us, then you will no longer be an abomination, but you will be a forgiven and adopted child of the living God. Do you know this God? Do you love this God? Then strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful to him. Identify anything that gets in the way of loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And with his armor on, make war on those things. He has already forgiven you of every transgression. March on with gratitude and affection. Do you know this God? Do you love this God? Are you amazed by this God? Then tell others about him. Praise him in the congregation. 
Praise him in your household. Praise him in the marketplace. Tell others how they can be right with him. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the true and living God, and we worship you and you alone. Thank you, O Lord, for revealing to us that the gods of this world are nothing, that their idols are not to be feared, O Lord, but you are to be worshipped. And we ask at first that you would help us to worship you exclusively, to lay down our own idols that we struggle with in the flesh, and to never bow down to them, but to bow to you and you alone. And we are so grateful for your mercy and grace that every time we fail, forgiveness and steadfast love is with you. And we pray also, Lord, that you would also give us the boldness that this passage has, the boldness to declare that you are the only true and living God and that there's only one way to you, Jesus Christ the righteous. Help us, O Lord, not to concede to the idea that other gods are there, but instead to stand firm on your truth and to be faithful to you in our proclamation and in our living. Work in us, O Lord, for your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen.